text. And if you don't have a Bible, you can follow in the order of worship. And again, welcome. We're so glad you're here. And it's, we love to see faces we have not seen before. So glad to see yours. And if there's anything that we can do for you, please, please let us know. We'll try to find someone who knows what to do. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians this morning. This is one of the Apostle Paul's letters, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. A few years ago, I heard a counselor who works with a lot of families. She made this comment, and I, I, I just had never heard it said this way. It's very simple. I just had never heard it put this succinctly. She said, in a healthy family environment, the parent pursues the child. The child doesn't have to pursue the parent. I'd never heard anyone say it quite that way. And um, that, that if, uh, if the child is always having to kind of rope the parent or the, or the grandparent back in, rather than feeling like there's this older figure that's there for me, that, that there's, there's problems. And I thought about, in, in that sense, the Apostle Paul was like a good father, a good dad to the churches he helped start. And here's what I mean by that. He, he went through incredible hardship. We're going to touch on that this morning. To get these churches started, it wasn't like, yeah, I, I had to raise support for six months. It was like, uh, we got stoned in that town. Uh, not with drugs. With rocks. And uh, just lots of opposition and lots of pushback and spiritual attack. And, and, uh, but it started. And, and, uh, and he can be firm very firm in these letters that he writes to these churches. If you ever read uh, the letter of Galatians, he very firm, takes them to task about some things. But, but over and over he'll tell these churches, I, I love you, I think about you, I remember you in my prayers. I'm, in several places he says, I'm working on returning so I can see, I want to see you again. And the question that I want to ask is, where did that come from? Because the easy thing to do would be to read that and go, well, he's an apostle, and apostles have it together, and he had it together, so he's the kind of guy that just loves people, and that's easy for him. All right, loving people is easy for no one. In a fallen world, no fallen people find loving easy. Now, you may find niceness easy, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you love. But he really loves these churches. And the reason I'm wanting to look at this, we've started a series. This is the third installment in a series that we're doing for a few weeks. And we're calling this the Habits of Love. And we're, what we're wanting to look at are basic components, basic uh, Christian practices and disciplines that we need in our lives. And I've tried to say this each week, that words like habits and disciplines and um, uh, practices. I mean, those are not bad words. Even the word duty is not a bad word. But the problem would be if someone were to ask you, why do you read your Bible? And really, we're not sure why except that I, I was told that I was supposed to. Or why do you pray? Well, because I think, that I, I think in the Bible it says that we're supposed to, so I, I pray. I'm not totally sure why I pray. Well, the habit of love that I want to look at this morning is community. 
the real practice of community. Now, community, 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 that's just kind of a buzzword right now. And we want it, but really, where does it come from? Not as the world defines it, but biblical community that we would practice together as Christians. What does that look like? What does it mean? Where does it come from? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel... So we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we come together and we continue to worship, we may feel that we need each other, or we may feel that we most certainly don't. And it may be that even walking in here is an act of faith because we are very uh, cold or detached. Or maybe it brings great anxiety to us to, to be around this many people. But Lord, you know us, and you're intimately acquainted with all our ways, and you know that we need help. We thank you that you're the God to whom we can say help. So please help us through your word and bring yourself glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters. Uh, Love to quote from this book from time to time. And I think most of you would know the story. It's, It's Lewis writing from the vantage point of an older demon named Screwtape. And he's coaching his nephew, Wormwood, a younger demon, about how to tempt a patient, and the patient is a man that the demon is working on. And you wouldn't picture a, an older demon told, telling a younger demon, you, you wouldn't expect the mentor to say, you need to get him to church. You'd picture a demon saying, do not let your patient go to church. But in one of the earliest letters, he's talking about, and here's what you want to do, get your patient to church. And the angle you want to work are the people who are there. And here's, here's what he says in part. When the patient goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands and one shabby little book containing corrupt text of a number of religious lyrics, hymn book, mostly bad and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks round him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. 
you want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. And when he says enemy, he means God. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our Father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have shoes that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. At his present stage, you see, he has an idea of Christians in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but which in fact is largely pictorial. His mind is full of togas and sandals and armor and bare legs, and the mere fact that the other people in church wear modern clothes is a real, though of course unconscious, difficulty to him. Never let it come to the surface. Never let him ask what he expected them to look like. Now that, to state the obvious, that's so insightful, it's unbelievable. As, As we think about ourselves as a church, now I'm not assuming that everyone here is a member of this church, I know that's not the case. And I hope that this is beneficial to whoever's here. And, and also, we know that not everyone in the room is a Christian. But if you're here and you're learning more about the Christian life, I, we want to put cards on the table. I mean, if, if you're thinking about what does it mean to be a Christian, then now is the window of time where you need to do due diligence. If, if I were to become a Christian and join a church, what does that mean? Is it a service provider or is it something else? Because the scriptures would say most decidedly it is something else. It is an actual community. And I don't mean in the, bu- like the buzzword, community, community, it is nice to have community on my terms. But it's an actual community of people. Now, how do you really have that? Because believe me, once you join a church, any church, this one or another one, once you get into a local church and you really start to learn who the people are, people will rub you the wrong way. And you'll find the person that's just, it's just the way they say things to me. Or it's the way her child acts in our community group that just rubs you the wrong way. Where does real community come from? Now, I want to look at three things. Again, we're thinking about habits of love. If we're going to be a church, if we're going to come together, if we're going to do things like this, do we know why we're doing it? And is it coming out of love or is it just I grew up going on Sunday mornings and I'm going to die going on? So, well, I can't go after I die, but up till I die, I'll be going on Sunday mornings. Or do we know why we're doing what we're doing? The obstacles to community, the pathway to community, and the practices of community. All right? The obstacles to community, the pathway to community, and the practices of community. Paul is writing to one of these churches that he helped start. And you can read about this in the book of Acts. What would have been the obstacles to him really, not just formally, but really relating and connecting with these these Thessalonian Christians? Now, there's a couple that are... You don't even have to read the text to know. That's just by by the nature of the case. The first is this. 
He had an uber-Jewish upbringing. The Apostle Paul did not have a nominal Jewish upbringing. He had an uber-devout Jewish upbringing. And he was not brought up to think Gentiles are fantastic. He was brought up to think Gentiles are the problem. And when we say us versus them, Gentiles are them. And the Jews are we. The Thessal- now, there may have been some Jewish presence there, converted Jews, but, but the critical mass of the Thessalonian church were Gentiles. Now, there's an obstacle. The second thing is this. He went into Thessalonica knowing, I'm not, going, I'm not moving to Thessalonica. I'll be here a while, and then I'm going to leave. Now, some of you have experienced this, and some of you may be experiencing this right now as you're in Greenville. In other words, when you know you're not going to be somewhere long, long term, you handle relationships differently than you might in your hometown because you're saying, well, do I want to get super close to you and then move? Have you experienced that before? And, And think about just right now for us in Greenville how that can affect two groups of people. You may be here and know that you're not going to be here a long time. For instance, you may be a student in the area, but you know in such and such amount of time, I move on. So how much real community can I have in Greenville? By the same token, it may be that you are from here and you plan to die here and you went to school around here and your best friends are from here and you feel like, you know what, I barely get time with my old friends. People I grew up, people, they were in my wedding and I was in theirs. I I, I go months and months and months without seeing them. I don't have space for new friends that are only going to be here in Greenville for two years. My dance card is full. So it's almost a double-edged sword for both groups of people. Do I really want to give my heart when I know I'm not going to be there? Paul was not moving to Thessalonica and he knew that. But what else do you see in the text that could be an obstacle to community? One thing is this. Now, he refers to this, and you can read more detail about this in the book of Acts. Look up in the early verses. I'm sorry, I forgot to put the verse numbers in there, but um, be strong. Second sentence. He says, Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi... Now, in other words, one of the stops on this missionary journey when I came to Thessalonica, that included Philippi, and boy, did they get roughed up. And by roughed up, I don't mean someone was really severe with me one day. I mean physical attack. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Now, there's lots there, but let me just acknowledge this. Think about if a place or a group of people is where we experience mistreatment or even abuse... Sometimes what we'll tell ourselves is, well, you know what, just for my own health, just for my own, just my own flourishing, I need to avoid that place because that place or that group of people has such connotations of things that were horrible in my life. Paul could have said that about the Thessalonians and the Philippians. And can you imagine being physically attacked by hostile crowds because you've come to tell people about Jesus and then writing to people, maybe not the ones who did it, but people in that region saying, I really want to get back and see you. We could say in our way of talking, Paul got burned in that area. 
And I just find myself quoting this over and over. I know I've quoted it in the midweek studies. I, I, I may have done it in a sermon, but here it comes again. It's the best definition I've ever heard of a cynic. A cynic is an idealist who got tired of being disappointed. And we just tend to think, yeah, Paul. Paul's Paul. Paul's an apostle. He goes into places, might get beat up, might not get beat up. But, uh, man, he's, he's the little engine that could, and he plants churches, and he keeps going strong, and he gets martyred and just never has an off day. That is a naive way to look at a human being. He was a human being. And think about the... I mean, he, he says this in the text... We didn't come with a pretext of greed. I wasn't going through the area, you know, to like build something for myself or to market something that I'm selling you because I'm going to launch it in the fall. We came to tell you about Jesus Christ at great personal expense and were mistreated as we did so. And we love you and I would love to see you again. The other thing that could have been an obstacle, I'm glad he says this, is uh, that can kill community, is he says, you know, we could have come into your midst and made demands as apostles of Christ. In other words, the king and head of the church made me an apostle. I, I could have, had, I have the authority to do this. I could have just come in and said, look, like it or not, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the, this is the response he wants from you, and that's the deal. And whether you like me or not, that's the deal. I'll talk to you next week. But we did not do that. We came in and we gave you the gospel with our face and with our tears and with time and hands and feet and relationship I provided for myself. I didn't charge you for this so that you would know it's a gift. And that's interesting to me because I... We are living in a time in the American church where it's becoming increasingly common that you can be a teacher of the Word and just put good info out there and not have to be the person who invests face time in the people to whom you're giving the Word. And the New Testament does not seem to acknowledge that model. And that the ultimate example of not using that model is the Lord Jesus Christ and His humanity who had the right to say, here's the gospel, here are my claims upon you, I have every, right, I have every claim upon you as the king of the universe, but He comes and His face is with our faces and He lives with us and He's there. Gentiles, He's only there temporarily. He got burned in that area. He could have been a truther and said, here's the deal. But then something changed. He did establish not only a community there, but the experience of community with them. And this is the pathway to community. Now, if you've been coming for a while, you may be sitting here going, I know what he's going to say. The pathway is Jesus. And you're right but I want you to kind of feel it because that's the thing. This, Paul came into Thessalonica, Thessalonica knowing the gospel, but something touched his affections. And listen to this. Go back. He says earlier, um, go back to the part I read before. Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, see where I am up at the beginning? As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. What did I come to teach about? 
the gospel of God. Now you go down a little bit. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Did Jesus just give me power to write letters that will become part of the Bible? No. I was entrusted with the power to spread the gospel. All right, so already we're saying, all right, where did real community come from? It gathered around the gospel, but there are churches that preach the gospel where you don't, you don't feel that community. When do you know you have community? And look at the end. Last sentence, he says, So being affectionately desirous of you, that's a strong term, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Now, this is where we have got to stop and say, how do you get that? Because that's what we as a church need. Yes, we need the, the good news the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ, that is everything. But what does it look like where that fosters real community? Does it just come through, you just teach it? There are ministries and churches that teach it and then they don't experience that. You may have heard this story that came out of this past week with the bombing at the Boston Marathon there was a woman, and I can't remember if she was a bystander or a racer, but she was hit by shrapnel from the bomb, and she was severely injured. And, of course, right after the, right after the bombing, as best as people could, they were, they were triaging folks who had been hit. And so she was taken to an area where other injured people were. And, uh, and the, the, the news reporter that I heard this from said that she was absolutely hysterical, understandably. And a young man came over to her and calmed her down. Now, what calmed her down? Because if there is any setting where platitudes would not work, that would be it. I mean, if, you, if you, an explosion's just gone off and people's limbs have been blown off and people are, you've seen the pictures, you can't go over to somebody and say, you, you know, you need to think about the blessings in your life. Not going to work. What this guy did to calm her down, he had been in Afghanistan and he had been hit by shrapnel. And so he showed her his wound. Now, I don't know exactly what he said, but I would guess it was something along the lines of, look, when I got hit, it scared me to death and I thought I was going to die, but I didn't die. And I'm okay now and I'm here with you and you're going to be okay. And the reporter said it, it was so effective that after she had calmed down, she said, you need to go talk to other people and calm them down. Now, that is a picture of what we have the resources to do if we'll do it. And, and I want to be careful here because I don't want to allegorize a tragedy, but if, if we pictured it, that when Adam and Eve ate that fruit a blast went off and the shrapnel hit every one of us. It hit our bodies and it hit our feelings 
and it hit how we think about things and process things, everybody got hit by the shrapnel of the fall. And you know what real community, you know when real community happens? It's when two people who both got hit say to each other, not just the damage, but the blessings of Christ. And he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. He comes to make his blessings flow wherever the shrapnel went is when two people with both the bad news and the good news sort of look at each other and say, me too. There's a, there's a um, she's an academician. She's, a, I think, kind of a sociologist, author, speaker who's become very um, widely known right now named Brene Brown who has written about vulnerability and shame. And she, she has made this comment that two of the most powerful words in the English language are me too. Because then you feel understood. And then you know you're not alone. That's when you start to have it. Paul, I mean, Paul comes into this area... And what did shrapnel look like in Paul's life? I grew up Jewish and my star was on the rise and I thought I had it figured out and Jesus turned my whole life upside down and it's changed everything. And even now, knowing what I know, I struggle with my sin. And he's talking to a person who's a first-generation Christian, Thessalonian Gentile, idolatrous background. He says that overtly. You turn from your idols. Used to worship idols maybe till six months ago. And he's telling his story. She's telling her story. And that person and Paul are looking at each other and they're saying, me too. And it touches the affections. It's not just data, but you start to have community. So what are the practices of community? Well, there's three ways that people can be together. In a large group, or in a small group, or one-to-one. This is a huge insight that we have in our church. It took years. You can be in a big group or a small group or one-to-one. Now, in our church's life, what is large group? It's this. It's this. But how are we thinking about this? Because whoever it is that rubs us the wrong way or said the wrong thing a while back is probably here too. But let's say together that what this is, among other things, this is a giant exercise in me too. It's not primarily for our benefit. God in His mercy causes us to have benefit. But the great thing is to say, God, you're worth it. We glorify you. You're God and we're not. But part of what we're doing when we sing these hymns or we confess our sins is to say, me too. And I would be so particular as to say this. We are about to, to find ourselves in the summer. And I'm saying, I'm saying this as a fleshing out of what we're talking about this morning. This is not guilt trip, nor is it command. But here's what I would commend to you. When you have a week off and you go out of town for a week of summer vacation, instead of taking it to the edge, come back Saturday night. 
Two reasons. One is totally pragmatic. If you, if you roll in from vacation on Sunday night and go to work on Monday, you're going to feel like a car hit you. So just pure pragmatics. If you want to feel better, come back Saturday. Buffer. But the other thing is, if these, are, if these things are true, wouldn't it be great to come in Saturday night and Sunday morning, maybe you do feel like you got hit by a car a little bit when you wake up, but you wake up and whether you feel like it or not, you come into this assembly and you remember again who you are and who God is. And we say that you're holy, 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 and we say to each other, me too, and you rest and you wake up Monday and you're ready. Small groups, community groups. Mike Swart in our congregational meeting was, say, say, um, was saying that when he uh, started in the church six years ago, that was a dentures joke. I don't know if, if y'all got that. <laughs> that six years ago when, uh, when he came into the church, there were maybe, I don't know, half a dozen community groups and now we're coming up near 30. And it's funny that it's that number because I remember when I first came in saying something along the lines of, hey, wouldn't it be great if we looked up one day and we had like 30 community groups? We're about to have it. And you know what? I said, if that day ever comes, we'll all feel like they're ragged around the edges and we'll be scratching our heads about child care and somebody's child, you know, launched off my furniture or something and left a footprint. And that's how it's going to be. And have we hit the magical ratio of how much time to visit and how much time to eat and how much time to pray? It will be ragged around the edges. It will be ragged around the edges. Because we are. But are we willing to commit to it? And I tell you, I, I'm blown away by the level of commitment, but let's grow it. Let's get it better. Not so we can get a little badge, but because we need each other. The community and the feeling of community that we crave doesn't just flop down on you. It grows out of practices and disciplines. And one of those is, I'm going to be with this group of people, even though I would almost kill to just crawl into bed tonight. I'm going to go be with this group of people because it bears fruit. One other way that we have uh, small groups, and it's informal, is hospitality. May I say this without being shot? Southern hospitality is largely mythic. If by hospitality we mean put on the dog, few people are better. We're known for it. We're renowned for it. But Old and New Testament hospitality doesn't look like that. It looks like something where you don't need three weeks' notice and the home can be disorderly and it can be done on the fly. And the thing is, people know that. They know that you didn't have three weeks' notice, and they know you didn't get everything ready. And they know that Garden Gun will never photograph this. And so they feel welcomed. Could we be hospitable with one another? We are to some degree. Could we grow in that? Could we not regard the summer as an oasis of hospitality and I'll start having people back over in September? Could we be hospitable with each other this summer better than we ever have? One-to-one, I, I, I would just say this. This is harder for some people than others. This is more intimidating for some people than others. But we need to get together with each other.
we, we need to initiate lunches. We need to stop by. We need to stop spinning our wheels about, should, should I email her or not? Just We need to wade in, perhaps into some awkwardness and get some FaceTime as a manifestation of me too. And I'll tell you what, whether it's a cup of coffee or whether it's a community group, when those go from a good thing to a great thing, it's when you say me too. When is a community group great? When the food's great, when the house is great, a community group is great, or two people over lunch, it's great. When one says, I am messed up. And I can't change myself. And I know Jesus has taken my sin away, but I need help. Because everybody got hit by the shrapnel. But then you have community. Uh, Let me me end with this. Um, A year ago this morning, a year ago this morning, I was checking out of a Trappist monastery started my sabbatical, spent the first week in a Trappist monastery in Oregon, and I was checking out. And the man that checked me out at the counter, his first real interaction I'd had with a a monk, he was in his 80s, named Brother Martin, World War II vet, showed me his medal, showed me clippings about the battle that he was in, Pacific Theater, and um, we got to talking. And after a while, I realized that I thought he was trying to recruit me. And I, you know, I said, I, you know, I'm a Presbyterian pastor, and um, my wife is really pretty. <laughs> so, pretty much, I'm not joining the monastery. <laughs> so, sweet man, and but he told me about uh, going to the 50th anniversary. It was a reunion of his military unit. And it was in some swank hotel that was the closest hotel they could find to where this battle took place. And he said that, of course, he didn't have the money to do that. He's a Trappist monk. But somebody just bought his ticket and bought the hotel room and bought the food and everything. So he went. He said, hey, it was crazy. I'm a Trappist monk. I'm in this five-star hotel. But he was just kind of talking about life. But this was the takeaway. At the end, I'm about to get in my car from a week at the Trappist monastery. And he says, I don't see how you guys do it. This is a man who's been... The Trappists are the ones who look at the other monks and go, y'all are kind of (laughs) loosey-goosey. Vegetarians, tons of solitude, tons of... I mean, he never marries, he he never goes... Just the whole, this strict life. And he looked at this guy from Greenville, South Carolina, and said, "I I don't know how you guys do it. And what he was saying was, it's a crazy world out there. And I kind of thought... Thank you, monks, for acknowledging that. It is a crazy world out there. It's a crazy world out there. That can be bombings, or it can just be the crazy things in our heart. Why am I so furious all the time? Why do I say things like that? Why do I hurt the people I love? Why do I want to drink that or take that rather than take it to Jesus? Why do I do that? We need each other. We need each other. 
And we can make, there is a world of excuses to make to not go toward each other. But you know what? If the gospel is as good as the scripture says it is, it means that both the bad news and the good news, we can look at each other and say, me too. And people very different from each other can start to have a shared life. Let's commit ourselves to that. Not out of duty, out of love. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, all the real community comes from you. Before any of us existed, you were Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One great God, but three persons. Utter and complete love, utter and complete enjoyment, utter and complete connection. And we want to taste that, Father. Would you cause that love that's in the Trinity to flow between lives at downtown Prez? Would you cause that love in the Trinity to flow from members of downtown Prez to other churches in our city, the cause of Christ around the world, that people would know, Lord Jesus, that we're your disciples by our love for one another? We ask this in your name. Amen.